The banks. That reminds me of a fine story. Do you remember what the bank robber Willie Sutton said when a reporter asked him why he did what he did? I do. Good of you to ask, and good of that reporter, too. The reporter said, Why do you rob banks? And Sutton replied, Because that's where the money is. I'm Annalisa Kingsbury-Lee, and you're listening to Climate Futures, a podcast which interviews Harvard professors, activists, and experts on possible solutions to climate change. You just heard an excerpt from Chapter 99 of Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future. This season in Climate Futures, we're following the big ideas in this science fiction novel. One of the big ideas that Robinson presents is climate blockchain. In fact, Robinson explicitly cites something called the Chen Paper, which puts forward the idea of a carbon coin. Today, we're very lucky to have Dr. Chen himself, Dr. Delton Chen, uh, here to talk about the idea of a carbon coin. Dr. Chen is project director and founder of the Global Carbon Reward Initiative. Dr. Chen, thank you so much for coming today. And would you like to start off by saying a little bit more about yourself since your background is somewhat unusual? Thank you, Annalisa. Thanks for inviting me on your podcast. My name is Delton Chen. I'm an Australian civil engineer and I specialize in geohydrology, which is water resources, particularly under the ground and how it interacts with surface water and forests. And I've been working in that field for a good 15 to 20 years, also in geothermal energy, and more recently in climate change policy and climate mitigation. Awesome. And you're here today to tell us about your big idea, which is global carbon reward. Uh, What exactly is that? Sure. The global carbon reward is really what it sounds like. It's a market-based policy that I developed with my colleagues, and it proposes that to resolve the climate crisis, we actually need a global reward price for carbon, but not a price on the emissions, but rather a price on the mitigation services. So instead of taxing people for emitting carbon, you give people money for successfully mitigating or reducing their carbon emissions. And so maybe to help people picture that side, the consumer end, so to speak, what is the kind of thing that you want to reward with this carbon currency? I mean, what kind of person or organization are you going to be giving this money to? So there are three uh, main strategies that are recommended with the global carbon reward. One is to reward proportionally cleaner energy with a special formula that looks at the amount of avoided emissions. And then the second way is with cleaner businesses, which can include households as well, potentially, but uh, call them enterprises that change the way they consume. So if they buy cleaner goods and services, cleaner energy, there's a special formula that will look at that and then calculate a reward to enterprises for consuming cleaner. And then the third way is taking carbon out of the ambient atmosphere. And that's generally called carbon dioxide removal or CDR. And the technologies are often referred to as NETS, negative emissions technologies. So as a regular consumer, how might you be interacting with this carbon currency? Well, there are two ways that people, communities could interact with the carbon coin, carbon currency. Probably the easiest way is simply to buy it as an investment. And if it's highly fungible and it's easy to buy, say, over the internet through your smartphone, um, one would hope that ordinary people could buy it knowing it's a pretty good investment. But the other way uh, is, of course, 
by providing a mitigation service. Carbon farming is a good example. You mentioned India. So we, we need to use our imaginations here a bit and propose that there's methods of organic carbon sequestration through farm, new farming techniques, possibly. Could be biochar, could be uh, growing, regrowing forests or, you know, pick a, a fibre, maybe hemp and permaculture and so on. Any technique that can either take carbon out of the atmosphere and store it reasonably safely or turn it into stable commodities that can hold that carbon in. Now, in, in that case, um, it's quite well known that there are risks in this approach. Like the land surface is leaky, changes in rainfall and temperature could have adverse impacts on carbon. So it has to be tested out and it has to be monitored over the long term. But if the techniques are refined and they are labor intensive, this can work out very well for people in India, for example, because if they can get access to land that's suitable uh, and it's labor intensive, then we have a revenue source for these people to do carbon farming, to refine those techniques, to monitor them very carefully using scientific measurements, et cetera, and then report back to the Carbon Exchange Authority, <clears throat> keep an eye on things. And as this is progressing, People from all over the world can contribute with uh, advice on how to improve their technologies. Now, if our carbon farm in India is successful, and let's say they mitigate 100 tonnes of carbon dioxide, just as a, a number, uh, we can also adjust that 100 tonnes up or down in terms of the reward to reflect the social and ecological co-benefits that they're also producing. Conversely, if they're creating harms, we can lower the reward. This is a secondary objective and a, an adjustment scheme that is intended to promote climate justice and ecological protection and regeneration through this carbon currency. So we have kind of two dials. The first dial is the reward proportional to the carbon. And the second dial is for co-benefits and to try and improve community well-being and so on. I like that. And we see in Ken Stanley Robinson's book, he gives us an example of a couple in India who managed to make quite a lot of money just doing what they really ought to do to take care of the land and store carbon in the land. And hopefully in future episodes, we'll have more of a chance to talk about carbon farming. So we've seen some of the advantages of this policy for the consumer. Maybe let's flip around and talk. Maybe just briefly, what are the advantages this policy might have for banks? Well, you know, I'm not a banker. Um, I assume you might be talking about commercial banks or development banks, not central banks, but, you know, the guys in Wall Street, every capital city in the world's got lots of banks and they're in the business of lending money to make a profit and they invest as well. So from their perspective, I think it's a pretty good deal because what we're doing is we're creating a new revenue stream for all the low carbon projects potentially and it's debt-free revenue. You see, it's not a loan. It's really important to emphasize that. So we're not putting people in more debt. And as they make more money for, this, for their effort, whether it's cleaner energy, cleaner business or carbon removal, they're more uh, profitable. And so the banks get a good deal because they know there are more projects occurring. They will need support. Many of them will need loans. They can lend to them. And when they look at their financial plan, they see the carbon currency registered as a future earning. And the bank can look at that, can look at that carbon currency and say to themselves, 
yeah, that carbon currency is backed by central banks. So that's a good revenue source. We can trust it. And so we'll lend to you because you're credit worthy. So we have the Glasgow Finance Alliance for Net Zero, GFANS, and other banks saying that they're going to devote their capital towards climate-friendly projects. I assume it means lending. So if we have carbon currency in the system, those banks will have an easier time lending and everyone can count their carbon currency because it will index just how climate-friendly they actually are rather than just guessing. More carbon currency in your account, the more climate-friendly you are and the more money you have. Interesting. Well, it'll be interesting to see if the central banks pick up on this idea. And then, of course, last but not least, what are the benefits of this program for the companies? You might ask, well, why do we pay these companies to produce cleaner energy? Won't they just do it themselves? And the answer is um, it's difficult for them to do that super quickly because of the high capital costs and the risks. So if they're moving faster than the market, there's no guarantee they can sell their products and the technologies are risky and they have to change their all their uh, processes. What the reward policy will give them is another option. It will say to these big energy companies, hey, look, if you want to go net zero, seriously, quickly, uh, we'll let you into the global carbon reward policy. We will reward you according to our rules, but you've got to go, come in 100%. You can't sort of half be in the policy, do a few green things here, and then start polluting over there. So we, it's kind of like an all or nothing approach. And this will clarify which companies are deep green and which are just greenwashing. Before we move on, I think it might be useful for listeners to quickly distinguish this carbon currency idea from other economic incentives for companies to reduce their carbon emissions. The two most famous of these are carbon taxes, which are quite intuitive, taxing carbon so that companies have to pay extra money per ton of carbon, and then reinvesting that tax revenue as well in renewable energy or in other carbon-reducing programs. The second is a cap-and-trade program, which gives companies a certain amount of allowances to emit X tons of carbon and then allows them to sell or buy these allowances with each other. So how does your program, the Global Carbon Reward or Carbon Currency Idea, differ from these two programs? Yeah, this could be super confusing for a lot of people. You know, you hear carbon tax, cap and trade, carbon offsets, subsidies, blah, blah, blah. What does it all mean? Um, what I did is I consolidated all of this thinking into a matrix. So the matrix, I call it the carbon pricing matrix. It basically just says that there are four major options for carbon pricing. Uh based on whether it's a carrot or a stick or whether you're using regular money or a carbon-based unit of account. So two rows, two columns, four options. Option one is tax, option two, cap and trade, option three is subsidy, option four is our global carbon reward. And so what should the relationship be between these cap and trade or carbon tax programs and your global carbon reward idea? I mean, do you see the global carbon reward as replacing carbon taxes or cap and trade? Are we saying the carbon reward is to replace carbon taxes or cap and trade? And the short answer is definitely not. The idea here is that we're offering carrots and sticks. So if we offer a carrot in addition to a stick, then companies will, won't resist so much the uh, decarbonisation challenge because the, the carrot will give them more revenue to work with and it can help um, 
for them reduce the risks in their financial planning over the long term because we're offering a predictable rising uh, reward price, whereas carbon markets today uh, offsets or what have you, the prices are not guaranteed. They fluctuate and it's difficult to plan ahead, say, 10 or 20 years. And, and here is part of the problem. In energy provision, particularly large-scale energy, you're really talking about big infrastructure like huge uh, pipe networks, refineries, ships, and so on and so forth, solar panels. Uh, and it takes years, sometimes decades, to build this stuff out. And so you need a reliable price into the future to be able to justify the borrowing and the equity finance to investors and banks. And hence, the, the global carbon reward will provide that stabilizing price to sort of de-risk these operations. Great. And before we get into those more macroeconomic ideas about this currency, let's briefly just emphasize this carrot and stick thing, because it's absolutely something that Robinson leans into in Ministry for the Future as well. This is partly because he thinks that the best way to motivate humans to do something is to combine a carrot with a stick, as you just said, Dr. Chen, a potential reward for doing something with a potential punishment for failing to do it. Listen to this quote. A carbon tax, thus added to the carbon coin, was said by Chen and others to be a crucial feature of the plan. When both taxes and carbon coins were applied together, the modeling and social experiments got much better results than when either strategy was applied by itself. Not just twice as good, but ten times as good. Dick pointed out that for economists, carrots and sticks are both just incentives, and thus the same, although they tend to assume kicks are more efficient than carrots. Mary shook her head vigorously. We're animals, not economists. For animals, negative and positive are generally regarded as quite distinct from each other. A kick versus a kiss. That is from chapter 42 of Kim Stanley Robinson's Ministry for the Future, and if you've ever negotiated with my little sister, you will see how right he was. Now, he follows up this discussion in chapter 42 with a talk about how to convince the world's dozen top central banks to actually act on this global carbon reward idea. So now that we understand what the advantages are of this global carbon currency that Dr. Chen is proposing, let's go back to some of the macroeconomic questions. Dr. Chen, how do you see this carbon reward being implemented in the current financial system? We recommend a special instrument, which we call a carbon currency. And a carbon currency has a lot of advantages because we can take the policy out of the government's fiscal accounting and we can support the value of the currency with monetary policy and central banking. So there we have the formal or technical idea of carbon currency, and we'll come back to some of the de technical details later. But just to clarify, what you really mean by that is that a carbon currency would be like any other currency, sort of in addition to the dollar or what have you, that governments and banks can support to make sure it doesn't collapse or go crazy high, crazy low value, the same way governments, central banks currently support regular currency. And this is going to be necessary if you're giving out effectively free money in exchange for carbon emissions reduction. So let's talk about that aspect as maybe one of the more concerning aspects to a newbie. How do you picture this being controlled, being regulated? In, in managing a currency or actually managing anything that has a price, the price is discovered through supply and demand. Now, the reward rules give an indication as to how the currency is supplied in proportion to mitigated carbon by mass. However, the demand function is really how we create the, the value. So in a conventional policy, I suppose we'd go to the government and say, look, can you fork over 
X billion or trillion dollars. And the government will typically say, uh, look, you know, we don't have that much money. We'd have to raise taxes, so maybe not. But in this policy, we don't go down that route. What we do with our currency is that we um, coordinate the world's major central banks and we, we say to the governments, look, you know, if you give up a bit of sovereignty from your central bank, what we can do is use all the central banks in the world, potentially, to guarantee the value of our carbon currency. So we set a forward-looking floor price for our carbon currency, and we just have all the central banks uh, on one protocol to buy the carbon currency if it ever dips below that floor. So what you're saying is the central banks will set a floor for the value of the currency, which is the minimum amount that carbon ought to be rewarded by based on our goals about climate change. And then people will trade the currency and the value might rise. Could you explain that a little bit more? That price floor is uh, prescribed and it's assessed so that we have enough mitigation to achieve our climate objective. So we set the objective first, and it would be something like staying under one and a half degrees with 50% probability of success. And then you get a team of people who are very smart. They understand uh, what's going on in the world with computer models and technologies, and they have to develop approximate abatement cost curves uh, for the world, for different technologies and energy technologies, et cetera, commodities, and they will uh, figure out what the ideal price should be, what the ideal floor price should be. So it's a promise to give a predictable rising floor price for our carbon currency to match the problem of mitigating climate change. Now, the currency can be traded, so the price will actually rise above that and fluctuate, but that's discovering the, the price as people trade it. Now, the beautiful aspect of this approach is that if the central banks need to buy the currency, they only have to expand the money supply like the way they do with quantitative easing. And quantitative easing, for those of us who don't know, is a type of monetary policy where a nation's central bank tries to pump money into the economy by buying what are called long-term securities in order to increase money supply and encourage economic growth and investment. So that's how it would be funded. And if all the central banks are on the same protocol, the inflationary effect can be managed so that there is no visible difference in the value of currencies, except in relation to our carbon currency. So in this approach, what we're really doing is we're devaluing all the world's major currencies relative to our carbon currency, and that funds the whole process, that funds the policy. Now, what does that mean for governments and citizens, etc.? Well, for all stakeholders, the interesting feature of this approach is that there's no direct cost. So governments don't have to allocate money towards it. They don't have any direct cost. There's no direct cost for businesses or citizens. So we're taking the cost off balance sheet and we're monetizing the cost. And we're actually creating a a investment grade currency, an asset. So that still leaves my burning question, which is who do you imagine regulating this? I mean, being in charge of setting the value of monitoring how much carbon companies or individuals have actually mitigated or sequestered. And of course, the all important task, making sure that this new currency doesn't totally destabilize the financial system. We really need a new international institution uh, 
that I call the uh, Carbon Exchange Authority. So it's a new authority. It'd be international, maybe established under the UN, FCCC, and they would be given a mandate to do all these calculations, calculate the risk cost of carbon, set the floor price, and do all the administration for issuing the currency as a reward. And that Carbon Exchange Authority, what it's really doing is implementing a carbon exchange standard. Like um, in the past, there have been standards like the gold standard where the US Treasury would exchange uh, US dollars for gold, 35 US dollars per ounce of gold. So it's kind of analogous to that, except when you're dealing with carbon in this way, it's much more technocratic. It's, bit, it's a lot more complicated and nobody's going to show up to this to to our carbon exchange authority with money and say, give me some carbon, please. That's not going to happen. It's it's all retired carbon as a service. And of course, it occurs to me that it wouldn't necessarily make sense for the price to be set the same worldwide to have a, a standard that was universal or even in different industries in the same country where the cost of mitigating or sequestering carbon might be wildly different. In a policy that's global, the reward for cleaner energy uh, is going to be determined market by market. It's not one rule for all energy. Uh, the rule will be calibrated for each energy commodity. That's part of the job of the carbon exchange authorities to set those baselines, not too high, not too low, but just about right, where the financial incentive is just about right to get those energy companies to accelerate this transition to clean energy. All right. Uh, well, thank you for that answer. And I think last but not least, let's talk about the elephant in the room, the blockchain part of the idea, which Kim Stanley Robinson leans into really heavily in his book, perhaps because it's been so trendy recently. And for you, it's more optional or one potential tool for a global carbon reward. Uh, let's talk a little bit about how blockchain fits into your vision of carbon currency and keeping in mind that it's been really highly controversial at the moment, especially in environmental circles. Yes, you know, well, blockchains are all the rage. If you don't use the word blockchain, people just don't take it seriously these days. But I'm just joking. No, seriously, with central banks and money, um, there are different types of ledgers, technologically speaking, like you've got your standard ledgers that banks use, which are centralized. Blockchain offers the possibility of a decentralized ledger that uh, you can say the current account is agreed to uh, universally and quickly. And so it does save time and money in setting it up. Central banks have figured this out anyway. They have new technology called central bank digital currencies, and they're all based on blockchains of some type. So it's actually the central banks themselves that are running with blockchains. It's not necessarily coming from me or anyone else. They, because they're pretty clever people, they could see the opportunities quite some time ago and they've they've got quite sophisticated blockchain based currency platforms now and the, the carbon currency would work really well with the central bank digital currency type platform it could be seamless with that and so um, it's really just about being pragmatic 
And we could spend a whole nother episode breaking down blockchain, both as a potential climate tool, it might have advantages, particularly in countries where getting funding might be difficult, and the many critiques surrounding it, including that it isn't truly decentralized, security, scalability, and efficiency issues, and so on and so forth. Um, and in fact, maybe spending another episode talking about that would be really interesting. Uh, but since it's not essential to your proposed idea, I think the only thing we really ought to talk about is the biggest problem that people have been pointing out, which is that blockchain seems to require an enormous amount of energy and uh, require a ton of carbon to be burned, which of course, in this context, seems rather self-defeating. Could you comment on that a little bit? Yes, that's uh, well known now that Bitcoin in particular uses proof of work. It uses a huge amount of electricity. I'm not sure how much off the top of my head, like equivalent to a country like Austria or something. Uh, but not all blockchain currencies are like that because they might use a proof of stake. I'm not sure if that's reliable, but there's another architecture that's not fully decentralized. If you set up a network based on a consortium of uh, known actors, businesses or central banks or whomever, you don't need to do all that proof of work and the energy requirements actually negligible. So, uh, in this case, the carbon currency wouldn't have that big energy or carbon footprint because it's just not needed. It it would be secure through the fact that we know who the computer, who's running the computer nodes on the network, a consortium network. All right. And I'd like to wrap up this conversation by asking you, what are the chances that this kind of global carbon reward program, regardless of its form, will actually be implemented in the near future? Kim Stanley Robinson has it being ultimately quite successful, but it takes a long time for our protagonists to actually convince those central banks. You know, it's hard to predict. Um, first of all, it's not the central banks that need to uh, agree because they're basically following out their assigned mandates. It's government that decides. So the government usually sets the mandate for central banks. A good example of how this can change is this year, the government in the United Kingdom gave the Bank of England a mandate to target net zero. That came out of the blue very quickly. And there's an example. You know, if, if you asked me the question a year ago, um, I would have probably been a bit pessimistic and said, hey, look, you know, it hasn't happened yet, but I think it's possible. But now we have an example and how quickly that happened. If we look at the history of money and, and central banking, I think that is characteristic of how central banks evolve. Their mandates kind of change, evolve sporadically in, ref in response to the situation of the day. So a bit of pressure from society that's directed very clearly with a specific request, a few politicians who understand and want to uh, make big change. All we need is a few countries to come on board, I think the pressure will be on to do something very transformative and this would qualify. Thank you so much. Uh, and in case any listeners have uh, gotten interested in this subject and want to learn more or even get involved, could you tell us a little bit more about your organization, Dr. Chen, Global Carbon Reward? What are you working on at the moment? How are you guys trying to make this policy vision a reality? To actually implement a new policy, there's a number of barriers. One, you need financial support to get into think tanks and institutions. Then you need a campaign of some kind to present it to politicians or whomever. And that's a very slow process. The approach that we're taking, a theory of change, is not to bother with that, but to set up a, a demonstration 
with a government, a state government, and maybe a couple uh, national governments to run a demonstration where everything is managed and we're only really involving about maybe a dozen technologies and we create our own currency and our own uh, central bank. Our own central bank won't be real. It's just a simulation, but through the simulation, we can explain to the world how it works and then the world can make up its own mind. All right. And best of luck with that. Um, Do you have a last message for listeners? I just say, look, if anyone out there is listening and if you've listened to this whole podcast and if you qualify, uh, we do need help. So we're looking for volunteers and we're looking for active advisors who who have some experience to share in helping guiding us and helping us to develop our business model, our business plan and uh, bringing this concept to fruition. If you're not in that position, but maybe you are interested in the topic, if anyone has a question, just reach out. Happy to, to answer questions. And that's Dr. Delton Chen, the founder of Global Carbon Reward. You can find them at globalcarbonreward.org. Thank you so much, Dr. Delton Chen, for coming on this podcast today. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed talking and uh, thanks, Annalisa. You just heard episode three of Climate Futures, a podcast that talks to Harvard professors, activists, and experts about social, technical, and economic solutions to climate change. And this season, we're following along with Kim Stanley Robinson's science fiction novel, Ministry for the Future, and the big ideas, big solutions that it presents to climate change. We just talked to Dr. Delton Chen about the issue of a global carbon reward or a climate blockchain as one potential financial instrument to try and decrease carbon reductions and incentivize companies to reduce those emissions as fast as possible and as effectively as possible. Tune in for more episodes about solar geoengineering, about lawsuits on behalf of children and future generations, about space-based solar power, and a whole variety of topics coming in the rest of this season. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I'm Annalisa Kingsbury-Lee, your host, and this has been Climate Futures. Climate Futures.